Well, amen. You guys go ahead and be seated. Happy Thanksgiving. Uh, don't know how that was for you, if family dynamics were good, bad, if you ate way too much, if you still feel full, but I'm glad you're here. Um, my job as your pastor sometimes is to help you like learn some spiritual disciplines. One of those is it's okay to play Christmas music now. Uh, before Thanksgiving, contrary to popular belief, you can't do that. So just want to let you know that. Hey, a few things. Um, one is this, okay? This never happens. Actually, in the year and a half at this school, this hasn't happened, but today it's going to happen. So this is going to be a test of your patience. Uh, the school bell is going to go off twice during the message today. The principal has already warned us. They can't do anything about it. So I need you to zone in, all right? When that goes out, I know like any like squirrel, we're out, and then we're done for the rest of the time. Uh, for the few of you that might fall asleep, this will be good for you. But for everybody else, all right, zone in with me. If you have a Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. If you're new, uh, you don't have a Bible, they're on the ends of the rows. You can grab one of those. You can turn there. We'd love for you to do that because every week we dive into the Word of God. Now, if you don't do that, it's going to be on the screens for you as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. All right, as you're turning there, let me say this. This is really important. We've started a new sermon series called Saturated, where we're looking at what does it mean to be saturated in the Christian life. Now, we are going to build upon each message, which means last week um, we began the series and I took a good half of the sermon to walk through and address some common objections um, when it comes to generosity and giving and, and a lot of those things. And what we said, and just in a nutshell, is listen, God's not after our money, he's after our hearts. So the way I say it around here is God's often not after taking money out of your pockets, but idols out of your hearts. We also said that if you actually read the Gospels and you read them <coughs> correctly, 75% of Jesus' sermons have to do with money which means that it's actually one of the most important topics that never gets talked about in the church. So what we're doing is over the next few weeks, and we're not even talking about money, we're talking about generosity, which actually has to do with our time, our talents, and our treasure. So what I want you to hear me say is this is a continuation from last week's message. Uh, if you didn't have the chance, go and listen to that. That's going to be really helpful, okay? All right, Second Corinthians chapter 8. I, I've heard it said, I've heard it said oftentimes there's really two ways to blow up a balloon. You can either blow it up with air, and you can smack it to make sure it stays in the air. You can blow it up with helium, and then it floats on its own. Uh, really, those are simply the two ways that you do that. And the reason why I say this is what I often think about in the Christian life is the Christian life kind of acts the same way. You can either smack it and continue to have to have something that motivates you to lift yourself up, or you can change the atmosphere in such a way that you naturally do things. My concern, if you will, my worry for most of us in the Christian life is when we think about giving, we think about giving much like we think about blowing up a balloon with air. It often takes us smacking ourselves and our, our morale to continually motivate us because we're driven by compulsion and guilt and not by love and grace. So honestly, most people, honestly, that's why they give if they give at all. So maybe, maybe for you, as we talk about um, giving, your motivation is guilt. You believe that if you don't give, you won't be a good person, and somehow, some way, God is sitting up in heaven using the proverbial scales to weigh out your life based on your goodness and your badness. And how you give and what you do in the Christian life matters a lot. Maybe for some of you, listen, you're just more pragmatic than that. You give because it's tax season, and you got to hit the deduction, because if I don't hit the deduction, I'm not going to get money back. And if I have to choose between giving money to Uncle Sam or to the church, I'm giving it to the church right? Some of us think that way. Maybe for some of you, you actually give because you think it's the right thing to do. 
You simply don't know why it's the right thing to do. And because of that, you just give anyway. You see, all of us, all of us have reasons for why we give, but here's what I want you to hear me say today, is if your reasons are motivated by anything other than the gospel, listen, they won't last, and you'll become a begrudging giver. You'll give for a time, and you'll need somebody to smack you around to motivate you again. And now what I think is really kind of weird and disturbing is most of you view me as the guy who smacks you around, right? You come in here on Sunday, if that's what you do, and you get your pep talk for 40 minutes, and you get yourself smacked around, and you're motivated for another week because you got to get going again. Listen, that never lasts, okay? And that's a horrible way to live. That way of living always leads to guilt and shame, okay? But there is another way to live. There's a more effective way to live. You got to change what's in the balloon, you got to bring something into your life, into your heart, that actually changes the atmosphere of why you live. I believe that if you get what we're going to talk about today in 2 Corinthians, what Paul's going to tell you today, it will actually change the motivation for why and what you do. You will begin to be a cheerful giver, a naturally generous person. So here's where we're going. Paul is going to give you four motivations out of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 that will lead you to be a cheerful and generous giver. Motivation number one is this, the example of other believers. Motivation number one, the example of other believers. Look at this, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. See, Paul is writing a second time to this church in Corinth, and part of how he begins this dialogue over the next two chapters on generosity is by pointing to another church. He does that because sometimes our greatest motivation needs to know that we're not alone in life. And I don't know if you're anything like me, sometimes I just need to know that what I'm going through, I'm not the only one going through it, and the things that are difficult for me, everybody else is dealing with that too, and I'm going to be okay. I think that's why Paul begins the way that he does, is he says sometimes we need to look beside us and understand that we're not the only ones running the race. So Paul tells stories about these churches in Macedonia and how they suffered like crazy, but in their suffering, they became super generous and listened because they understood that God supplied every need that they had. One of those churches, one of those Macedonian churches, we actually know quite a bit about. It's the church at Philippi. If you were here earlier this year, we studied the book of Philippians, and I want to show you really quickly, if you hold your place and you just go to the right in your Bible, just a few books, to Philippians chapter 4, let me just read for you really quickly how this church in Macedonia was given, okay? Uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, Paul ends his letter to the Philippians, and he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I'm speaking of being in need, here's the giving, right? For I have learned that in whatever situation, I am to be content. I know how to be bountiful, brought low, and I know how to abound. In every way, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that at the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Now that I seek, the, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I've received full payment and more. 
I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of the glory in Christ to our God and Father. Be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, this church in Philippi was suffering greatly. They literally had nothing. Paul's trying to teach them what it looks like. And these guys, they're still the ones <coughs> that are giving sacrificially. And this is what Paul points to when he's pointing to generosity and he's looking at the church at Corinth. He says, look at the example of what they do. Under intense persecution, they served as an example for us. Go back to 2 Corinthians and look at verse 2. He says this, continuing, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Again, notice this, Paul, if you really read the text, says that there's two motivating factors that these churches in Macedonia had. The first one is an abundance of joy, and the second one is an extreme poverty. By the way, that word extreme poverty, it comes from this Greek word that means deep poverty, like bottom of the barrel or dirt poor. That's how we would say it today. They literally had nothing. You know, you might be thinking, if you're anything like me, as you read this, those seem like contradictory statements, don't they? Extreme poverty and abundant joy, they don't seem to go together. Honestly, if you're like me, you think, hey, I'm most happy, I'm most satisfied when I have a lot. When I have everything, when I have abundant wealth, I have extreme joy, but that's simply not true. And Paul shows you that. He actually says that their abundance of joy comes from their extreme poverty. Now, don't misunderstand me because I'm about to show you what I think the Bible says is that you find joy in poverty. That doesn't always simply mean physical poverty. See, Jesus, in his, most sermon, in his most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us this in Matthew 5, really quickly. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Check out what Jesus is saying. The poor in spirit, or he's using the same terminology, the dirt poor are those who know that they have nothing in their spirit are the ones who are blessed. Why? Because they know that they have nothing and they need God. The same thing's true with the Macedonian church. Oftentimes, God, he uses our spiritual poverty and our physical poverty to show us that we have a need for him. And oftentimes, listen, it's in our poverty, it's in our weakness that we understand that we have the greatest gift of all, which is God himself. Have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed personally in the hardest times of your life that seems to be when you have the most? Look, I've been a pastor for 11 years now and I promise you my earning potential has gone up over the years. My first job, I literally made nothing. You could have put me in the category of dirt poor. Me and Allison, we had nothing, like literally nothing. It was just the two of us and we, we didn't even know how we were gonna get by. But do you know what? I look back on those times and that seems to be the times that we had the greatest joy in Jesus we've ever had. I don't even understand how I can put those two things together, but we had nothing, could barely pay our bills. We didn't know how we were going to pay our bills. And all, at the same time, it seemed like we leaned into one another and leaned into God, and we loved each other more, and we loved Jesus more in that season. Do you know why that is? It's because poverty, both spiritual and physical poverty, has the ability to make us depend on God in such a way that when we are filled with our stuff, we don't. See, God always always is after your heart. And sometimes our things get in between those two things. And listen, God always provides. So our poverty created dependency in us that produced a joy in us because we experienced the sweetness of Jesus and his love for us. That's what you see in the Macedonian church. By the way, let me just say this. That's why suffering is so vital. Again, things you normally don't hear in churches. God uses suffering. 
Did you ever notice that most, if not every single person in the Bible that God used significantly actually suffered greatly? Paul being probably among the most. You see, Paul himself, he was afflicted in every way. At the end of this book, 2 Corinthians, he's suffering so badly that he actually says he, he comes to the end of his life and he doesn't even want to live anymore. And then Jesus shows up and he talks to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 9. And listen to what Jesus says to Paul. He says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. You see that? See, this is Paul's concluding statement is that God's grace is sufficient for him. Listen, God's grace is sufficient to, watch this, fill up your balloon in such a way that gives you sustainable joy. That's the point. Five times in these nine verses that we're looking at today, you're going to see the word grace. Over and over and over again, the encouraging example of why you should give is God's grace. Look at this real quick, and you can just highlight these and go back. Verse 1, we, know you, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given to you. Verse 2, Right, begging us earnestly for the favor. Now that word favor is the same word for grace. If, if you want to fact check me, look at your footnote at the bottom of your Bible and it'll tell you that. It's the same word for grace. Okay, the favor of God. Verse six, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Verse seven, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Verse nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. That's it. Listen, the motivation behind true, gen truly generous people is an overflow of grace in their life that's found in a dependency on God. That's what you need to see. And here's how Paul tells you. You're not alone in this. You're not the only one that God is moving in such a way that he's trying to capture your heart. So those times when it feels like there's a pool and a struggle, look beside you, church, and look to the people who's running the race with you. Honestly, that's the beauty of the church. The church is meant so we can gather together and live in community in such a way that we can look at one another and grow in our grace and our, our worship to God because we know that we're in it together. So look, keep going with me. Verse 3. For they, this is the Macedonian churches, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Notice, again, notice how they gave. Okay, this order is really, really important, right? Really quickly, I want to give you a guiding principle for how you can revolutionize your giving. Here it is. Write it down. This will change everything. Don't pursue giving. Pursue Jesus. That's it. That's important. You see, the reason why these churches became so generous is because they were captivated by Jesus. I want you to hear me say that, honestly. And I've said this, and I know I can probably get in trouble for saying this. I'll say it again. If giving is an issue for you, don't give your money here. Give it somewhere else. Because we're not after your money. We're after your heart. And if these messages are really difficult for you and you think, great, here we are. We're listening to another money message. I don't care about that. I care about your heart. See, I'm going to show you in the second motivation what Jesus is talking about, that the key is Jesus and not your giving, okay? You pursue Jesus, and you'll become a cheerful and joyful giver. You pursue giving, listen, and you may give, but you won't give cheerfully or joyfully. You'll give begrudgingly, and then you'll get bitter. See, honestly, it won't do you any good to do that. Actually, again, this is what happens a lot with philanthropic people. 
okay? They, they give first, and then they seek something out of it. And listen to me, that becomes oftentimes, according to the Bible, that becomes our religion. It becomes our motivating factor for our goodness. And, and I don't know if you know this or not, but an idol or religion is often not bad things. It's taking good things and making them ultimate things, and then we worship those things, See, this is, this is what we think. We often think that my idol or idolatry is when I take some evil thing and I elevate it, and that's just not the way the Bible talks about it. The Bible talks about it like you take good things that you should enjoy and you make them ultimate things, and when they become ultimate things, they become your God, and they can never satisfy you. And that's where all of us who don't get this order right are headed. Verse 6, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, and, our, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. All right. So here's the last encouraging example that Paul gives you from these churches in Macedonia. Listen to what he says. He says your generosity or their generosity proves to others that you're genuine. Why? It's because they gave money? No, actually it's not. It's because, like Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, you cannot serve two masters. Jesus says you're going to either serve God's kingdom or your kingdom. And what you decide to serve actually proves what's going on deep within your heart. And this is what we talked about last week. Again, second most unpopular thing that I say here that most churches don't tell you. There's no such thing as freedom. According to the Bible, you're either a slave to Christ or you're a slave to sin and the things that control you. The difference is one of those things overpromises and underdelivers, and the other one can actually satisfy your joy. So according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, you're going to serve something. The question is, what are you going to serve? What Paul says is these Macedonian churches have proved that they're generous and their love is genuine by how they serve Jesus. And out of how they serve Jesus, they gave because they're not controlled by their stuff. You see, City Church, that's the point. When you're captivated by grace, you become generous. And oftentimes, you need to see that example from other churches. Motivation number two, which is the most important motivation, is the example of Christ. Look at verse nine. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. You see, the second and the most important motivation for generosity is the gospel. And listen to how Jesus, or listen to how Paul logically walks through this, all right? I'm going to do the ABC. A, here's what he says. Though Jesus was rich. You get Jesus was rich, right? Like, he had everything. Like you, you get that, right? Think about it. Jesus was relationally rich. You read Genesis chapter 1. It says, we created God uh, we created man in our image. Who is the we? It's the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, which means this, theologically speaking, Jesus didn't need us to be rich relationally. He was in himself rich, right? He had everything satisfying his relational capacity, and he did not come and become a man and come to earth because he needed us to fulfill him. He was completely full and completely secure in and of himself. Jesus was rich in possessions. Now, you might think, well, what about in the Bible where it says he didn't have anything or a place to lay his head? Of course that's true in his humanity, but Jesus Christ himself created the heavens and the earth. He created everything. And he, he spoke the world into being, and if he wanted anything, he could have had it. He was rich. But part B, he became poor for our sake. 
get this, this is absolutely extraordinary. Theologians call this Christ's humiliation, meaning he humbled himself, Philippians 2, to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that we could worship him. See, this is the idea. Although Jesus was rich, he actively poured himself out. He subjected himself to his own creation by stripping himself of his divine glory and becoming a man. He became poor in every way. And check this out. He didn't do it because he had to. He did it because he wanted to because of you. He became poor. See, this is the most loving act of grace ever imagined. Part C. So he was rich. He became poor. And by his poverty, part C, you might become rich. All right, you see this? Jesus' death has brought you life. You get that. This is the gospel. This is why Paul says it's the most motivating factor of all time. Is when you understand the gospel that, listen, you and I, before Jesus died for us, were dead in our sins, Romans 5a, and we could not stand before him. But Jesus Christ, although he was rich, became poor by becoming a man. He lived the life you could never live, died the death you deserve to die, stood on a cross, was beaten to death, rose from the dead three days later, so that you could become rich. Here's what he's saying. Eternally, your status has changed. I've showed you this like in an example of talking about marriage, right? The difference between the day that me and Allison got married and the day before is that when we got married, she took my name, <laughs> which for her didn't mean a whole lot. But <laughs> for me, I gained a lot. But here's what she got. She became a low. See, her status, her family had changed forever. When you become a Christ follower, you receive the name of Christ, which means your identity has been changed and you are a son or a daughter of the king the one who created all things. See, Paul's second motivation behind generosity is this. Be generous because Jesus was generous towards you. Because in Christ, you have everything that you could ever imagine. Right? It's absolutely impossible to understand the gospel correctly and not be a generous person. How can you understand that the God of the universe has done everything necessary to save you and not help others? So here's the principle. Because God actively lowered himself to elevate us, we as Christ followers must actively lower ourselves to elevate others. City Church, this is the marker of the Christian life. Listen to me and hear me whenever I say this. Giving does not save you, but it does reveal where your allegiance is. Because, because it's not about money. It's about what do we hold on to and what do we trust for the sufficiency of our life. It reveals whether or not we understand grace. See, that's why as a church we care about justice. You get that, right? That's why we go all over the world, and that's why we do what we do, because we understand grace, that we understand that outside of the grace of God, none of us would have anything that we have. See, here's what it does to me. I'm rich to others because Christ was rich towards me, because I understand that if it wasn't for the grace of God, I would be exactly like the person I'm helping. That's the goal. That's the point. We care for people because we understand our own spiritual poverty and that if it wasn't for Jesus, if it wasn't for what the gospel does, then we would be in the same exact position. That's the motivation. The true gospel commands that we give because we did not earn. We are not righteous apart from the grace of God. You get that, right? The gospel humbles us and it lowers us to a place of gratitude so that all we can do is look up. That's what humility does. It lowers you positionally to a place that all you can do is look up at the grace of God and, and you care for other people in such a way that if you didn't understand the gospel, it would be really difficult to posture your life in such a way that you give to others. So I say, as God has given to me, I'm going to give to others. 
right? I want to let my life reflect the glory of God and what he's done. When you understand the gospel correctly, you view people in their humanity because you know that they are just like you. They are sinners in need of grace. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, I would be just like them. That's the gospel. Motivation number three. It's the example of your own life change. So Paul goes from the example of other churches to the example of the gospel to the example of your own life change. Look at verse 10. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according, to, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need. That there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Watch this. Our desires naturally flow out of our actions. You see the logic? See, the gospel changes your heart. That's why that motivation comes first. And you begin to be a generous in response to the generosity that was given to you. And then as you continue to give, watch what Paul says. You desire to do it. That's the great motivation. When you enjoy something, you want to do it more. Right? Let me give you an example of this. Uh, Many of you know that I've started running. All right, I've started working out a little bit. Now, here's the deal with that, okay? Four months ago, I started running, but I'm the guy who told you I would never work out ever. I said I worked out every day for 21 years. I'm taking the next 20 off. Like, that was kind of my goal. But I got this email from my health insurance company that told me that if I started tracking my workouts and sending it in, they would give me money. So I was like, money? Good, I'll start running. I hated it. I absolutely hated it, but I kept doing it. And do you know what happened? Over time, I actually desire it. Like, I look forward to it now. I actually get up every day, and I go and I run, and I went from running like 10 minutes a day to like five miles a day, and I actually enjoy what I'm doing now because that's what naturally happens in everything that we do. Okay, you begin by doing something, and you force yourself into it because there's some kind of motivation behind that. But what ends up happening is your desires naturally follow your actions. And that's what Paul's saying about generosity. He's saying it's like exercising a muscle. Now, if you've ever exercised a muscle in this room, what you know is when you begin to do it, it feels like you're tearing the muscle down, right? You actually kind of are. It feels like you're getting weaker, but that's not what's happening. If you push through the hurt, you actually build up, and then you get stronger, and you want to do it more, and you want to do it more. Paul's saying that's what generosity looks like. When you first begin to do it, of course it hurts a little bit because you're not used to it. But if you keep going, your desires will naturally follow your action and it actually gets better. So check this out. If you want to be a cheerful giver, listen to me, push through the pain. But don't take that in isolation. Remember the second motivation. The second motivation is the gospel. Because if you just push through the pain without understanding the gospel, you simply become the philanthropic, begrudging giver. Because the motivation has to be correct. But once you do you'll eventually begin to desire to do the things that you feel like you're pushing through to do. And that leads to Paul's second point. Listen, your giving then creates a system of care for one another. That's what he says. You see, this is how the church works, and this is how Christian life works. The gospel changes your heart, and it creates in you a desire to lower yourself to bring others up. And listen, look what happens as a result of that. As you bring them up, they tend to give back to you. 
Look at verse 14 again. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need. And there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. See what he's saying? As you are generous and you bring people up, they tend to be generous in return. Isn't that the way the church should look? When we just went through the book of Acts, isn't that the way the church at Acts looked? They were generous towards one another. They gave to one another, and they brought each other up, and everyone benefited. See, gospel-centered community that cares for one another in our hospitality and generosity, listen, it changes the church, and it changes the entire city. And that's what Paul's getting after. And then he quotes. If you notice, he says, as it's written, whoever gathers much had none left over. He's quoting from the Old Testament in this area um, where God was providing for the people of Israel as they're coming out of the prom- or going into the promised land through food called manna. Okay, here's how it worked. God supplied food for them, for the people of Israel as they're going. It rained down every day. But what he said was, I'm going to give you an abundance of food, like more than you could ever need. But there's only one stipulation. You can only have enough for today. And if you take some for tomorrow, it actually rot, becomes stinky, and it gets bad. Because here's what he's saying to them. He says, I will provide for you, but you have to trust that I'll provide for you. So you got to trust that I'm going to come back the next day and the next day. And do you notice that's what Paul's saying? Paul's saying one of the the motivating principles behind giving is that when you keep giving, you elevate others and you trust God to provide for your needs next time. So as it's written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. It's a mutual giving to one another because you understand the God behind the giving is the one who supplies all the good anyway, which leads to the fourth motivation. The last one, multiplication. Turn over to chapter 9. This is Paul's arguments in two chapters. So I'm going to read chapter 9, 6 through 15 really quickly. Listen to what he says. The point is this. See, he's getting to his concluding point. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that has come from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. See the last motivation that Paul gives? For our generosity is super practical. Listen, when you give generously, multiplication happens. Let me show you this. There are two primary places that you see this in Paul's argument. The first one is this. God multiplies his grace upon us. Look back at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, 
you may abound in every good work. You see this? Giving generously starts the process of God providing more of his grace so that you can give even more. Now, hear me whenever I say this because there's a balance here, and if you don't get this right, it leads to this thing we call the prosperity gospel. Listen, God's not saying he's blessing you so that you have more. He's saying he's blessing you so that you can give more blessing to others. God increases our ability to give so that we give more. And I think that's how grace works. Your capacity increases as you grow deeper into the gospel, right? Because your faith increases. And when your faith increases, you give more because you're full of God and not full of yourself. So here's what that means. When God emptied Paul of his independent self-sufficiency, it allowed God to fill himself with Jesus. You see that? God emptied him, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in your weakness, Paul. So God emptied Paul of himself so he can fill him up with him. Listen, write this down. It's impossible for you to be full of Jesus if you're full of yourself. Real practical. So as you empty yourself of yourself, God supplies you with more of his grace. And as he supplies you with more of his grace, you begin to do more good works. That's the way generosity works, in a real practical way. Why does God bless you? So you can be a blessing. Here's the second motivation, though. God multiplies your thankfulness. Look at verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Watch this. Which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. See it? The second really practical reason why Paul says you should give is because it produces thanksgiving to God. As you give, you notice that God gave to you. And as you give, you notice that God supplies everything that you'll ever need. And that's what the gospel does. It changes your kingdom. You know that you belong to him, and because you belong to him, you give generously. Right? And think about it. Real practically, last week, we had one of the most monumental weeks in our short small church plant where we had 200 volunteer slots filled where we served for three days and I think it was 28 and a half hours in our city what we call our four hour city week that we do twice a year where many of you guys gave of your time and your resources to sacrificially give back to our city what ended up happening as a result of that is we bless our city but not only do we bless our city listen God fills you up because as you know anytime you've gone on a short-term mission trip or anytime you serve sacrificially you realize that God has been good to you and you give get more of him, and then you walk away, and you don't think, man, I really hate that I had to serve this week. No, you think, God, you are so good, and you're so kind, and you become more thankful, right? That's what happens. As you give yourself away, you experience joy. Why? Because deep down, you know that generosity produces a thankfulness to God, if you get all the principles right. So, that turns to the third thing that Paul says. Look at verse 6, his concluding point. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Going back to the original point, there's two ways to give. You get this, right? The first way is this, reluctantly and under compulsion. That's what he says. This is like smacking the balloon. Over and over and over again. It's like me coming along and telling you you must give because you got to earn something or whatever. And what ends up happening is you get tired of getting hit. 
And then you walk away or you get mad or, 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 you, or you fall into shame. Or the opposite is that is you become the people who talk about the prosperity gospel where you feel like God's just going to bless you so that you can have more. And that sounds really good until you don't have that blessing anymore or until you get sick or whatever. Because honestly, the motivation behind that kind of giving is not God at all. It's yourself. See, that type of giving never changes you because it never changes your heart. And God is always after your heart. And listen, City Church, let's be really honest with you. We're after your heart too. I promise you that. I care about you. Like I told you last week, give somewhere else if that's the case because here's what I care about. I care about you being generous people because as you're generous, if you read this text correctly, you become more thankful to God. And when you become more thankful to God and you understand the gospel, you dive deeper into the gospel. That's the point. So Paul says the other way you can give is cheerfully. You know that word cheerfully, its root in Greek is the word that we get our word hilarious from. God wants you to be a hilarious giver. He wants you to be a joyful giver. God wants you to give cheerfully because he understands that when you give that way, it produces joy. That's what verse 6 is saying, right? That when you give, not out of compulsion, but you give out of what God has done for you, it produces joy. And that's what we want. We want really generous people. We want people that will change the way that they see God because, listen, when you do, it changes the atmosphere in the room. It's like taking the air out of the balloon and putting something in it that lets it float on its own. And that something, my friends, is the gospel. That's it. That's why Paul and every single writer in the Bible goes back to the gospel over and over and over again. I heard Tim Keller say it this way one time, the gospel is not just the diving board in the Christian life. It's the entire pool that you go deeper and deeper into. It's not just the starting place. You don't just become a Christian and move on. The beauty and the, the hope of the Christian life is that when you hear the gospel, you go deeper into the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not the same person that I was when I first became a Christian. I think I love Jesus even more, and the message has never changed. I just go deeper and deeper and deeper into it. See, God wants a cheerful giver. God wants a cheerful giver, and it starts by remembering the gospel. It starts by recounting your own poverty, and before you received the gospel, that you were dead in your sins, and then instead of moving beyond the gospel, you continue to go deeper into the gratitude of what Jesus has already done for you. And here's what happens. As you do that, listen, it captivates your heart. You, you, you know this, right? The way, by the way, this soapbox for a second, the way you stop sinning, and, and I wish somebody would have told me this, it's not, it's not to, to suppress the sin. It's to fall deeper in love with Jesus. It's to be captivated by something with a stronger attach, attraction. If you will find yourself falling in love with Jesus and understand the gospel and go deeper into it, you'll begin to want that stuff less because God is changing your heart. And that's the point. So hear me whenever I say this. The gospel supplies a wealth that can never be taken away from you, a wealth that connects you back to your true and eternal identity, that you are a child of the King, and that in Christ you have everything you'll ever need for sufficiency and joy and everything else. And as you embrace that wealth in the gospel, listen to me, God takes you from this to this, to a true freedom. A true freedom that says, God, I know you've given abundantly to me and I'll enjoy those things, but whatever you gave, you've supplied them and I will give and be generous. You see, all of this, like I said last week, all of it, all of it is because God's after your heart. That's why we're doing this series, because we want you to be saturated in the love of God. 
Because I believe that when you're saturated in the love of God, when you believe and when you understand that God is jealous for you and that God is after your heart, listen, your life begins to change because the things that are competing for your heart don't matter as much anymore. City Church, like God, that's what we're after too. We're after your hearts. Because the mission has never changed. People are the mission. And that's why we do everything that we do here at City Church. Because people are the mission. That's why we planted this church. That's why we go on all the mission trips we do. That's why we serve in our city. That's why we have small groups that serve continually here. That's why we gather here and on Sunday mornings, we end our services by not saying come back, but we end our services by saying, City Church, you are sent. Because we believe that God is creating our church to be an army and not an audience that comes and we give ourselves first to God and then to others. Everything we do is God working in us and working through us to be a blessing so that we can see his kingdom come down in Alpharetta as it is in heaven. That's the goal, my friends. So here's the principle. Here's the principle. We give out of a response to the gospel. We have to get that right. You, God first, give second. Listen, a person who's shaped by the gospel is a person who is excited to give in every way because that person understands what's already been given for him. God has already done everything necessary to save you. Everything. And do you not believe that he cares more about you than he cares about anything in the world? If you ever doubt that, look to the cross. He proved his love for you that while you and I were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I love this quote. Kent Hughes, listen to what he says. Real practically, Jesus can have our money without our hearts, but he cannot have our hearts without our money. The reason is Matthew 6, what we talked about last week. There's a competition over our hearts, and Jesus is after our hearts. That's it. He wants you. Let me ask you some diagnostic questions as we finish. Listen, is God getting my first and my best? Not just my money, but who I am, my time, my, my talents. What does my resources say about what I believe about God? Think about that. How about this one? Am I listening to the Holy Spirit about meeting the needs of our church and others? Am I sensitive to that? Because listen, guys, I hope I've made this abundantly clear. It's not about giving amount of money. It's about pursuing God and God's after your hearts. See, that's the point. So the motivation fact, the motivating factors that Paul gives the church is this. Look at it. You're not alone. God's at work in this world and he's using his church all over the world to do more than what we could ever ask or imagine. And if you need to be reminded, look at the gospel. Look at Jesus. He didn't have to do any of this and he decided to do it for you. He stood in your place. He died your death and he rose from the dead and now you are eternally satisfied. And then just look at what he's doing in your own life. Look at where you're at. Look at the history of where you've been and where you're going see the change. And lastly, look at what he'll do when you become a generous person. He will multiply your gratefulness. He'll multiply your thanksgiving. He'll multiply your ability to give even more. And he'll change the fabric of this city as we do that. And that's why Paul said we give. We don't give because we need more. We give because we need to give so that we can see the practical grace of God working in our hearts and our lives. City Church, that's why we pursue generosity. And that's what we want from you. We want your heart to be aligned with him.